what does it mean when each economy is kind of going back to their spheres, right? And how do technology companies handle it? The first thing I, I thought of is that there'll be no more access or limited access to Taiwanese semiconductors. That's one. But also I think we're going to see reallocation, right, of U.S. chips for U.S. and you're going to see Chinese chips for China, right? That means the cost of compute goes up, right? The most advanced microchips like mobile phones, virtual reality headsets, AI, all this stuff is going to be at some level maybe relatively more insulated from the rise of compute power. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Al, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, sci-fi nerd, and dad of two daughters. Join our movement of over 12,000 members for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.bravesea.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseville helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Good morning, Shein. Good morning. It's an hour earlier for me than it is for you. I know, really cranking out. Can we give you another double dosage of, I was going to say coffee, but that looks like tea. That's all they have in the hotel room. Oh no, that's like weak sauce. Okay. Well, this topic hopefully wakes us up. Folks have been asking about us to chat a little bit about global decoupling, US, China, Taiwan. What does it mean for tech and so, so forth? So I think a little bit about the macro side. How do you feel about this topic <laughs> within our zone of competence? Yeah, I mean, I think talking is not hard for us. Yeah. Yes, I think to acknowledge our zone of competence and how we might be straying outside of it. Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting to discuss kind of the business lens on it. Yeah. But in terms of like what's going on behind the scenes on the political front, I'm not sure I feel super qualified to opine. We just, we are also reading the same news reports as everybody else, right? So. I guess so. Where I see what the, the, the meme goes about how all the VCs all became military experts during the Ukraine conflict. Uh, I don't have that problem. <laughs> I don't have that problem. I was never a military expert. Don't want to be. Don't want to purport yeah. to be. So I, I think stay within the, like you know, business, startups, technology. I think those are all good good places to, to keep our focus. Yeah. Um, but Let's yeah, I think it would be remiss of us not to discuss like some of the major major macro trends, I think, impacting the industry. And I think in Singapore, in particular, being a small country sandwiched between these two global giants, it's pretty hard to ignore, right? I think if you're an average Chinese person or an average American person, you can kind of go about your daily life <laughs> and probably not think about it too much. Yeah. It's the benefit of living in a superpower. 
but if you are a small country, you don't have that luxury. I think there are two things that are quite clear, right? Which is one is there is definitely movement going on today, right? In terms of the global decoupling. And two is that we know that there is some level of risk where the conflict could take, turn much more severe, right? Over the case of Taiwan and semiconductors. Um, and we actually have some numbers around the probability chance of that happening, right? So why don't we start first a little bit about what we think is already happening for sure, right? Um, so you mentioned, I think for sure, superpowers are making moves on each other. And I think Southeast Asia, like Singapore, is also very much trying to be neutral or try to play both sides, right? So I think already, I think we're seeing this global decoupling, right? Is the new phrase, I think, of the I don't know, year, right? Which is, I think, shorthand for saying, okay, we have so much manufacturing that's happening uh, in China. How do we move out of it, right? So we see a lot of like, they call it, used to call it what? Nearshoring or friendshoring, right? Which is moving manufacturing out of China. And that's actually benefited Southeast Asia, actually, right? So Thailand, Vietnam, Singapore all saw net inflows of manufacturing activity from American factory capital, from Chinese capital as well, who are trying to get that Southeast Asia, made in Southeast Asia brand. And we still see a lot of talent, actually, right, of China actually moved to Southeast Asia to continue building and manufacturing. So I think there's, it's already happening, right? Obviously, to the detriment of some of the manufacturing towns in China as well. I think you were mentioning something about Apple you know, a few weeks back, right, to me. So what, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think there has been a lot of news about Apple trying to diversify out of their Chinese manufacturing base. And I think Tim Cook was recently in India opening the first Apple store, and they're starting to assemble iPhones in India. But the parts are still made in China. So I think a lot of consumer electronics has been intertwined with China for so long that even if you want to decouple, I think it really takes time. And not to mention, like, it isn't as simple as like, hey, let me just copy and paste a factory from one country to another. But, you know, there's the entire ecosystem of labor, trained labor, skilled labor, and subcontractors and all the like parts that go into something that you know, you'd have to move a whole bunch of people. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think everyone mm. believes that it is better not to be in conflict, right? Yeah. I don't think that being in a war is a better state for anyone. And For so, some people, it is a better state. I mean, yeah, if you manufacture munitions, sure, for you yeah. it's better. But, you know, outside of that, I don't think there are clear beneficiaries and so I, I think we have to kind of like <laughs> plan for the worst hope for the best kind of situation yeah one man's nationalist is another man's patriot right so I, I think what you're saying is true right which is that global decoupling is not costless right I, I think that everyone's like oh you know, decoupling is a way to diversify that makes sense but I think what's interesting is that it actually kind of does two things, right? One is that firstly, there's a fictional cost because things are just more expensive when you're no longer producing in the lowest cost country around the world. So obviously, cost of living goes up, inflation goes up. But the second thing is that it actually opens up the solution space or the possibility of more conflict, right? Because now you feel less dependent on each other and less interdependent, right? And I think someone was telling me is like, we're the only generation of grown up without like a major cold war, right? The major war happening, right? Uh, because, and then it wasn't that the whole, like, 
articles about like, hey, you know, so it's economically interdependent because we want to do that so that we have less military conflict, right? I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see that, like, I don't know, global post-war, I don't know, peace, trade agreements, all this stuff is like kind of like, I wouldn't say flying out the window yet, but it's like sidling out for the exit a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of depressing, actually, because then, yeah, if every country is picking like the best state champion for everything, right? Manufacturing, technology, etc. Then, I don't know, there's some large kind of consequences, right? For founders who are trying to use technology to scale. There's a lot of consequences for VCs that are dependent on global capital flows. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you you lose some of the efficiencies from specialization, right? The whole very basic trade. But I don't know. I mean, we recently invested in a company in Mexico that is trying to basically be the Alibaba of LATAM Mm -hmm. and obviously addressing the U.S. market and lifting up Latin American manufacturers who can sell into the U.S., right? Yeah. And I mean, there was a crazy stat one of them gave me, which was like, there are like 2000 plus avocado oil, like merchants on Ali. Wow. And only like 10 of them are in Mexico. And, and he's like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like there, there are clear advantages, right? To be able yeah. to say, hey, I'm going to ship from Mexico into the US rather than I'm going to like ship from Asia or wherever okay. else into the US. But you haven't had the benefit of that all the infrastructure that was built and all the companies that were built in the last 20 years were really focused on like raising up Chinese suppliers, right? And so maybe one silver lining is like part of the decoupling is that regions that haven't historically gotten as much investment will get more and they can over time become more efficient as well. I mean, that's the like, I don't know, fingers crossed silver lining types of benefit. And yeah, I mean, I think you see this happening in Vietnam, right? Which is you see mm. a lot of the investment from the Japanese and the Koreans. It actually really helps the talent base in Vietnam. So like right. I have founders who are like, yeah, we actually have really incredible manufacturing engineers and mechanical engineers because yeah. we've now had at least like a decade of investment by the Japanese and the Koreans. And that makes it easier to start companies that require that skill set. And so that's sort of like give the rise of the rest and whatnot, not not just in in China. Yeah, I think uh, Tudo at Touchstone Ventures has announced that she's trying to do much more like robotics and manufacturing, which is kind of a novel thesis, right? Because, you know, in Southeast Asia, most folks are not really focused on hardware, right? But the fact that she's based in Vietnam and that Vietnam tailwind is happening and there's a talent base to do it actually makes it a viable strategy, actually. And I think, yeah, you mentioned the Japanese and South Koreans, actually, that's a huge part that's happening. I think they used to invest a lot in China, but because of this risk, I think a lot of them are moving their capital, actually, and their talents to Southeast Asia, again, to diversify, to look for growth returns. But it's quite interesting to watch uh, as well. Yeah, and I think the Chinese themselves are also moving into Southeast Asia, right? So, I mean, I think that the headlines people always love is like, oh, the Chinese are buying all the condos, they're driving up all the prices. But, you know, they're also starting businesses, right? And they're also trying to diversify out of a pure China play. And I think it's interesting. Like, I would say, I would guess, I don't know, maybe like five years ago, your average Chinese entrepreneur would not think to go outside of China. Yeah. Because it's like, why bother? This, 
I've got like the world's greatest market on my doorstep. Why would I go like yeah. make my life difficult and yeah. try to address some sort of like fragmented Southeast Asia thing? And I think that that has changed, you know? Yeah. And so maybe whether it is the COVID measures, the lockdown in Shanghai, the things that have happened to Jack Ma and the online education business, I think it's made Chinese entrepreneurs more aware that it might be good to have a outside China strategy. I've literally met Chinese founders in Southeast Asia, and one of them actually said, she said, like, I'm here in Southeast Asia because my schoolmate got, went to jail, right, before the IPO. And so she doesn't want to build in China, right? So, you know, this historically, this is not the first wave of Chinese immigration. Heck, my great-grandparents left China for, because of turmoil, right? That was more of a push factor, but rather than a pull factor. But you know, this won't be the last wave of immigration, I think. And I think we actually see in Southeast Asia multiple stacks, right? Obviously, you have Southeast Asians, and then you also see the Chinese, you've seen the Indians, you see the Americans, right? Who have always kind of like had that multinational or global point of view. I think you've had, obviously, the Germans via Rocket Internet. And to mm -hmm. the next extent, I think the whole European and INSEAD group all kind of like tagged along that pipe, right? To enter mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. Actually, when I went to... Vietnam and Cambodia, there were a lot of people who were like French connected because of their historical ties, uh, putting it nicely there. But also I think the two-way refugee flows, right? So there's that exposure and so so forth. And then like you said, I think over I think over 100,000 Russians have arrived in like Thailand and in Bali, right? And so, and they're all with their families or they're single male. So a lot of them are, like you said, setting up businesses, buying up property, you know, I was in Cambodia and they were also saying like, yeah, you know, the Chinese also bought a town and now they're all setting up businesses for their own community, but also starting to like look for local business partners, right? So I think there's a massive actually talent injection that has just happened over mm -hmm. the past three years. That was, I think, really, I mean, it was not obvious to me, to be honest, but I think it just became, I think, more obvious if you like travel to everyone, everyone's complaining. And I think the pattern emerges of like, yeah, this is this location actually that's very spiky, right, of talent and Obviously, it doesn't mean there's a startup in that base, but if you ask me, I spend a lot of time now to be like, okay, I make sure to like meet and see who else wants to be a founder out there, right? Because why not? Great talent can build for anywhere, especially if you're from Bali, right next to the beach or something. <laughs> hey, there's some great co-working spaces there. I remember I went there when I was like 10 years ago. One of those nice co-working spaces, that little massage, a juice bar. I was thinking to myself, man, like, I need to figure out a way how to live there. But now that I have two daughters, this is impossible, so... You know, I don't a, know. There's apparently there's apparently a number of Singaporean families that yeah. live in Bali where the the working parent still uh, stays in Singapore. Right. But the kids and the non-working parent stay in Bali yeah. uh, to escape the Singapore education system. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Clearly a push factor there. But I think there's actually a fair point, right? Which is that there is remote work now, right? Which is also didn't ha used to exist three, four years ago, right? So I think there's also made this global arena more possible right so yeah but i mean bali's bali man when you go there you just feel like you're on vacation i don't know if i could like grind in bali it would feel too sad <laughs> uh, well you have an upcoming event in bali and i just met some founders on online they're grinding in a villa in bali i mean obviously it's a bunch of co-founders and employees living in the same space so yeah 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 maybe if that that you could do that and i know i know some firms that because of the pandemic a bunch of their employees wound up moving to bali out of jakarta for better air quality and all that sort of stuff 
And so, yeah, yeah, it's totally possible. I think I'm just saying it's probably a personal limitation. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. When I go to Bali, I feel like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm in paradise. I can just relax a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think one of the portfolio companies, Midstay, has actually seen that for us themselves, right? This huge wave of relocation, right? And this emigration factor. So yeah, I think what else is happening in the global decoupling slash containment <laughs> approach, right? I mean, I think the most yeah. recent one that I saw was that China had cut off access to some information services for uh, external, like out, if you're, they detect that your IP address is outside of China, they don't actually give you access to some of these information services. And some of them were like pretty, I mean, not national security related necessarily. It's like, hey, I want to look up a company share registry. Yeah. Like, who are the shareholders? You know, you get a pop-up that's like, hey, it looks like you're outside China, you can't use this. And so, I don't know, right? Like, I think the more you make it hard for people to access information, I think the harder it is for external capital to invest. Mm. And the more it becomes yeah. like, hey, unless you're like China Chinese. Right. Like, beware. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't bother, I guess. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what the end game is there right and so that i think is interesting and then i think they raided bain right and one of those expert network companies mm-hmm. kept vision so i i think it's definitely casting a chill right i think it's making people think like okay how do i want to allocate resources as it pertains to china but i mean the u.s is also like they've got the chips act that's a big one, actually. Yeah, I They've mean, got Cepheus, like all this other stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. We live in interesting times, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's actually the huge part of that directly relates to tech. I totally forgot about that, right? Which is that America has effectively enacted a ban, right, on chip technology to China, right? Which is a crazy thing if you think about it. That's basically... I can't imagine anybody doing that to America. I can't imagine. But it's just like, well, you know, the, I think the yeah. Chinese are retaliating with their like yeah. investigation of Micron, right? And I think Micron's yeah. a U.S. company and it has I don't know, it's like one quarter of their revenue is Chinese sourced. Yeah, I think I, mean, I, I think I agree about the retaliation part. I'm just saying I think it's kind of crazy to think this of like you're asking your entire ally network to not export a class of technology. That previously, you know, everybody was happily, you know, it's a two-way relationship, right? Because you license out technology and then they manufactured those chips in China and then they went into American cars and fridges and everything else, right? That's how inflation was magically low for 10 years, right? It was because that was the, you know, trade, right? It's like, hey, we can manufacture cheap stuff in Southeast Asia and China, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, like, it's an argument to keep more things in cash. And then the Fed, the Fed raised rates again today. Uh, yeah. Uh, we didn't yeah. even talk about First Republic getting shotgun marriage, bought whatever analogy you want to use to J.P. Yeah. Morgan over the weekend. I mean, so, I mean, I think we were talking about this as well, is that I think this is still at least manageable, right? Because this is what's happening. But I think we we're talking about the, the large discontinuous business risk, right? Just, I guess we got Nassim Talib, oh everyone's favorite author. <laughs> it's good, like Black Swan, right? But I think one of the big things that everyone's reading in the news is like, I think the high perception that there's going to be some sort of military conflict on Taiwan, right? And I was just reading this foreign policy report and the article is very beautiful. It was like, the majority of IR experts believe there'll be no conflict over at war over Taiwan next year, right? In 2024. And I was like, oh, how reassuring, right? And then I read deep, and then I read, clicked in, and I read the rest. And then they were like, okay, 
that's how we measured it. But we also measured them by saying, what do you think is the as your personal estimate of the probability of that chance? So now this is a scale of one to one hundred, right? Not yes or no. And then basically, like the average rating of everybody's score is like twenty three point eight percent. So, so basically, saying. On average, everybody doesn't think a war will happen in Taiwan. But if we all scored it, we think there's a twenty-three point eight percent chance of it happening. And Spencer Christensen, a Harvard MBA classmate of mine, we were chatting about it, and he basically said, "This is the equivalent of you saying someone giving you a Russian roulette revolver and basically saying, like, on average, it's not going to kill you, but one of one of the four chambers has one bullet, right? So feel free and like to pull the trigger, right?" And I was just laughing and laughing and laughing, right? Which is like, I think, you know, I think every the whole business world feels like it's walking, is is basically saying like war is not going to happen on average. But you know, I think all the supply chain guys are basically like working their asses off right now. They feel the risk, right? That one in four chance of things going bad, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, I think. I mean, I would bet like a year ago on the eve of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, people on average did not believe that Russia was going to do it. Yeah. And look at here we are like a year later. I know, right? Um, but I don't know. I mean, I kind of really hope like we at least get through the US election cycle. <laughs> that's, that's only like a year. <laughs> One more year apiece. <laughs> One year at a time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's it's no bueno. It's no bueno. I don't like it. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's really disheartening. I think that the only thing Democrats and Republicans are united on is that China is bad. Yeah. And I think there are VCs that have done really well, actually, right? Because they're invested primarily in defense tech, right? Startups that are doing defense, right? So Underrail is a big one, right? With Peter Thiel's backing. But there's a whole bunch of that. And I was, <laughs> we shared the article, right, on the information, right? And yeah, this just talks about the VCs kind of like touring Southeast Asia and discussing that the government needs to invest more in defense tech, right? For national security concerns. I thought it was very interesting. And yeah, it's the one thing they can agree on. I mean, I kind of wish they would agree on something else like gun violence or housing or the opioid epidemic, like other things that maybe should occupy them. Rather than running around kind of warmongering. Yeah. I think most people actually want peace, right? But like you said, I think there's very strong interest to just keep the conversation focused, right? And like you said earlier, I think we should focus on, I think, the business and startup focus of it, right? I think one thing I do think about is very much like, okay, look, this is a scenario, right? Effectively, one in four chance, right? Whatever you want to call it, one in eight. If you think they're wrong, let's have it. It'd be one and two if you're really worried, right? Based on the headlines, I think. But it is a business risk, right? So let's talk about the scenario, right? I was reading this report that basically I think they think that if this happens, there's going to be obviously a conflict. It's a hot conflict. But the key thing they're talking about is that all the economic supply chains are going to break around the world, right? Because US, China is so interwoven, right? So I thought it was a really interesting conversation, right? Because, yeah, what does it mean when each economy is kind of going back to their spheres, right? and how the technology companies handle it. The first thing I, I thought of is that there'll be no more access or limited access to Taiwanese semiconductors. That's one. But also, I think we're going to see reallocation, right, of U.S. chips for U.S., and you're going to see Chinese chips for China, right, because of their local domestic requirements and maybe even military requirements. But if that happens, I think 
I think that means the cost of compute goes up, right? Because now it's more expensive. They're not going into fancy stuff or commercial applications. And then suddenly, I think you're going to see like cost of compute go up. And I think the stuff is also reliant on the most advanced microchips, like mobile phones, virtual reality headsets, AI, all this stuff is that's the most advanced type technology type of chips, obviously, gets much more expensive as a cost of service, cost of goods sold, the operating costs. And I think some SaaS and direct consumer, these they don't use a lot of compute power, actually, right? So those are going to be at some level, maybe relatively more insulated from the rise of compute power. Yeah. Maybe people will become more efficient. Yeah. Like, I don't know. There's always these pictures or like, hey, NASA sent people to the moon on the compute power equivalent of like your cell phone. Yeah. Or your calculator. Yeah. And so maybe what you see is people building more computationally efficient methods. Um, I think so too. That's a fair point. Like you could do a lot of things on a Raspberry Pi, but you don't, mostly you don't bother, right? Because you have such easy access to compute. I think we see that a little bit of sustainability, right? Because of the energy crisis, as well as the climate crisis. And we talked about it in the last podcast. We see companies push for efficiency, right? Which turns out to be cost savings in terms of electricity. So yeah, I think there's that. In fact, actually, I do have a friend, she, uh, Geraldine Finier, a prior brave guest, but she works at Spot, which basically reduces cloud compute power, right? So you install a service and then they make it more efficient, which is, I think, a very, well, I think it's important saving, but I don't think it's a must-do when cost of compute seems to be relatively cheap for a long time and feel stable for a long time, right? But I think, like you said, in this scenario, a company value proposition like that would be quite <laughs> be a, a requirement, right? If your cost of compute goes up by 20%, yeah, you, you want to save, right? Yeah. I wonder if also maybe people become more inward-looking, more domestically focused. Yeah. Trying to... I mean, I think you saw this a little bit in the pandemic, right? Which is that the pandemic kind of made Singapore a lot more aware of how, like, food safety was, like, <laughs> actually really an issue and right. really kind of sharpened the focus on, like, hey, actually, we should try to increase the percent of food that is grown locally yeah. versus always just trying to optimize for, like, hey, how many places can we import from? Yeah. And so I wonder if there's sort of also a sort of increased kind of domestic focus or... or Closer to home, maybe more regional rather than global focus, as people kind of like pull mm. in the drawbridges, whatever the right. You know, yeah, that's a super fair point, right? I mean, we talked about it again in the last episode of sustainability, but we talked about electric vehicles, right? Or at least battery manufacturing in Indonesia has gone up because of the, obviously, they have a lot of the nickel mines, right? So there's an economic incentive, but there's also there's a diversification and national security incentive. But you can imagine a scenario where you know, as all the Southeast Asian countries electrify their vehicles, and if there's conflict in two years or three years or four years, the export, right, of batteries from China will just go to zero, right, effectively, because everyone's... I mean, there's already tariffs now that have been implemented over the past five years, which has driven, I think, the domestic EV and battery industries. But now it's going to go to zero, then it'll be a big stimulus, I think, for domestic players, right, that are able to manufacture in the country, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, crazy actually now that you mention it. Never thought of it. It's kind of scary, yeah? I mean, obviously that means consumers pay more for tech, right? Electric vehicles, et cetera, but it'd be good for startups that in that scenario, if you're 
doing battery. I mean, I guess assuming that yeah. consumers' incomes aren't hit, like yeah. maybe there's just a general pullback in consumption. I think one thing I noticed was that a lot of goods in e-commerce, which tends to be our first-gen unicorns in Southeast Asia, a lot of the goods actually come from China, right? In terms of factories, in terms of the, especially low-cost stuff, but even the medium-cost stuff actually. And I think with the Singapore and ASEAN are part of the RCEP, right? Which is the, the free trade agreement of China. So I think technically the cost of living and the cost of goods has been dropping because of this dropping of mutual tariffs. But you can imagine in a conflict scenario. I don't know. Don't you think China would want to keep us on their side? I don't know why they would. They'd want to continue being able to export into this region. Well, it depends on, I think, whether the U.S. implements sanctions, right? Or shipping controls, right? On China. So I think we saw that with oil, obviously, for the Russians. So you can imagine. I think, I think you're right to say I think China would prefer to continue exporting and trading. But, you know, it could be disrupted, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like I said, then, you know, you're in Southeast Asian consumer. Yeah. So what should we do, Jeremy? Should we just run out and buy gold right now? Just start stacking gold bars under our beds? Well, uh, the problem of like loving tech in the future is like, you have to think about the future, right? So I don't know. It's, it's, but I think it's a real business risk, right? I think the pandemic, you know, it's like they share the stories, right? About how like, 9-11, there were c- companies that actually had business risk planning, right? And so they actually did evacuation drills for 9-11 or some kind of like fire or attack. And they survived 9-11, right? In fact, I think I remember in that scenario, the, fun- the firm who did it, only the head of security who went back up to help. He was the only person who passed away. The whole company made it. And there was actually one of the few companies actually bothered doing the evacuation drills from a skyscraper, right? And obviously the pandemic, right? The Gates Foundation was probably the, one of the few organizations that ever did a simulation of the pandemic, right? Which of course spawned a lot of the conspiracy theories down the road because it was publicized. I remember watching it and it was like kind of like eerily, I know, right? You know, and pandemic was like what? A 1% chance from people's perspective? Yeah, I know, what, lower than that, right? So I think it's more like, I think folks just have to be, I don't know, aware I think that's one. Be prepared. I don't know. I think actually a lot of startups are raising cash because they feel concerned about this macro environment, right? Interest rates and the US elections and this stuff. So they're raising cash just to have it. Bridge rounds, right? To mm. I think that's a- another way that I've seen, I think, founders take action on it. I think if you're an EV vehicle a company that's dependent on batteries, like based on what you just said, like, it's a high risk, right? I mean, at minimum, there's increased tariffs and restrictions. At worst, there's something spiky. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe <sighs> generative AI will save us. Maybe we just digitize ourselves and just do a virtual economy using crypto only. And, and we don't have to worry about what happens in the meat space. I mean, I mean, it's a bit, I mean, I know you're being a bit facetious, but like a lot of our lives do happen online. Yeah. Like, we mostly interact online. There's yeah. many people in which, you know, your your whole relationship with them is online. And so, like, right now, it's very one-to-one, right? Or right. Like one to a few, but, you know, it's not a crazy thing to say, like, yeah. I mean, if you think, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, like, what percent of people's lives was online? It was very little, right? Yeah. So, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe we all just keep meeting in the metaverse. <laughs> 
Actually, that reminded me of something, actually, right? I think there's one thing we can do, which is, I don't know, advocate for peace, as if I have a direct line to the US Senate or the Chinese Politburo, right? But I think hoping for peace and a peaceful resolution is one thing we could do, maybe individually, right? I don't know how you can do it. I do, so, I do not have such delusions of grandeur, so Jeremy. De- you're so depressed. Oh no! I'm not depressed. I'm not depressed. I'm just. I'm just like this yeah. is like, I you know I don't know really what That's like it. what we can do. You can prepare yourself, right? But I mean I don't know. I'm not under any delusions that anyone in China or the U.S. cares about what I think. Yeah. This feels like less action than. Remember last time we were like, what can we do with a global yeah. climate crisis? And we're like, there's so many things we can individually do. I don't know. Turn off the shower, turn off the lights, buy carbon credits. And then now it's just like, this one is like, oh. <laughs> I don't know. I think we can prepare. I don't know. If I was a founder, what would I do? Raise money. Just you know, have more cash. Have a conservative scenario. Right? Maybe identify dependency on supply chain or stuff like that. That's really important. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, prepare efficiency measures. Maybe you don't have to do it right now. Just have a, have a list of that. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, another thing I was thinking is like, don't, don't fly to Taiwan <laughs> for holiday. <laughs> that might be a, a business continuity risk, key man risk there, especially when you fly over to the air defense zone line. I was um, just talking to a guy who's based out of Taiwan and yeah. asking him about the mood. And he's like, well, the Taiwanese seem pretty unconcerned, but you know, they've lived under this threat for many years. Yeah. So yeah. he's like, I'm not really sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> like, oh yeah. yeah. Are you com- are you kind of complacent because you've lived through enough or you're like not freaking out because you've lived through enough? Well, maybe... Yeah, maybe that's part of the measures, right? Which is that maybe peace will happen, right? So, like, you have to keep your anxiety boxed away with a 23.8% chance. And then there's a 76.2. Sorry, I was just doing for that mental math there. Right? It's too early for that. It's too early. You don't know. I mean, I think it just, it's really like, like, yeah. I think people want to think about, like, well, what would you do differently, right? And so, like, I think on your personal balance sheet, maybe it's like you want to be more conservative. You want to have some cash. Yeah. Right. True. But, you know, I don't, I don't know, like you're a startup founder, like you have 15 other things to deal with, like, and worrying about this thing that you can't control. I don't know how productive it is. If you're like a Chinese national, uh, I think I've actually heard a few of them are weighing how to localize, right? Their, their immigration status, right? Across the various Southeast Asian countries, because they think of this risk. And so they want to have the optionality to still be able to travel in that scenario, right? Or to still be able to do business. I think that's something I've heard. Mm. Yeah, but it is interesting to think about the waves of Chinese immigration, right? So I'm in, right now I'm in Thailand. Yeah. There's a huge Thai Chinese community. And at various points, the the Thais were welcoming or not welcoming. <laughs> like every normal country in the world, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't think a country is built to like accept huge immigration flows every single year, right? But the Thai yeah. Chinese who are here have like localized, right? Like they have yeah. Thai names, they speak Thai, they've been here for generations. Um, yeah. And often business people as well. So it's not, not the first and won't be the last, as you said. 
Ah, on that note, I think it won't be the first and it won't be the last. And I think, hey, we're still around after so much conflict and wars, right? <laughs> In the world, right? So I think there's still hope. Yeah. Humans haven't quite managed to obliterate everyone yet. Great. What <laughs> an better, uplifting message, Jeremy. The better angels of our nature, right? Isn't you know, He claims that, you know, trend, trending towards more peace and less war, right? So. <laughs> okay, on that note, peace out. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.